And if you're just joining us for the first time in this series, we're in part four of a message series called The Vow. We're trying to give people that are not married but hope to be in the future tools that will help them build a foundation for a marriage that will be strong and God-honoring. And then we're also talking to those that are already married, whether those marriages are in good shape or need a lot of help. And we've been doing that by looking at four different vows. This will be the final week, vow number four. And today we're gonna look at what I call the vow of purity. And so I wanna start out with a few questions and I wanna get you guys to participate. And I, and I just wanna let you know, if, if you're my personality and I was with you where you are, it's so ironic because I'm a pastor, but if, if I was out there, I would be in the back row. And if I was told to participate in any way, my usual just sinful reaction is like, no. You know, like the moment I dread at every Christian concert, every Christian concert is when, you know, somebody, it's always gonna happen. Chris Tomlin is gonna be like, you know, grab hands with the person next to you and let's jump together. I'm like, are you out of your mind? On what planet do you think I'm holding the hand of a stranger and dancing? Like, I, I can't imagine what sort of power that artist must think they have. But because you asked, okay, let's do it. It's <laughs> never going to happen. You know, my, my, my dream seat in every concert is, is a venue where there's a balcony and I can be in the front row. You know why? So that I can sit for the whole show while everybody else like uh, stands up around me. This is because I'm always that guy. You go to a concert, you're like, oh, this is good. We're sitting down. And then the first person stands up and you're like, you ruined it for everybody. Then the people behind you stand up, and here it comes. Fine, I'll just stand. I'm like, if we would all just sit and contain our enthusiasm, we could all just sit for the whole show. Like, none of us would have to stand. We would, we would get up at the end, and we'd be like, that was great. I feel rested and entertained. But, you know, I guess 99% of the world doesn't see it the same way. So I say that to say I'm going to ask for your participation. You should also know this, though. If you don't participate, I'm one of those people like, I'll just wait it out till it gets painfully awkward. And so if you're like, I know he's asking, but I'm not gonna actually participate. Just, I'll, I'll wait it out. I'll, I'll point at you, I'll do whatever I have to do. It's not a, it's not a threat, it's just, it's, just, it's just a promise, more of a promise. So this is, this is all I'm gonna ask you to do. How many of you are married? Would you just raise your hands and keep them up? Okay, and if you're not married but hope to be one day, would you just raise your hand and, and add it to that? Okay, okay, so let's, let, let's look around. Let's look around, okay, pretty much almost everybody. Okay, you can put your hands down. Now, now last question, okay. Out of all of you, just, just go ahead and put your hand up uh, if you plan on committing adultery one day. Anybody? Just, just, no, no? That's good, even the people who are usually stupid enough to try and be funny, even they recognize like, no, this is, this is not the time to do that. <laughs> I'm proud of you if you had that impulse and you repressed it, good for you. Interesting, you know, uh, we'll, take, we'll take it down just a little bit. Um, anybody plan on becoming addicted to porn? Anybody have that New Year's resolution for 2020? Anybody? No? Okay, I mean, the stats say that most of us are, but how many are planning on it? Nobody? Nobody? Okay, okay. Okay, let's take it down. We'll just say, okay, may, maybe that's a little bit too icky for you, but anybody planning an emotional affair? Going to do something different? Not, not, you know, I'm not going to act on it physically, but just planning to get emotionally intertwined with someone this year that, that you shouldn't. It's good to have a goal, Brian. That's very good. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. So here's why we get that response. We get that response because nobody plans on ruining their marriage with sin, right? 
Nobody plans on wounding their spouse significantly, and yet people do it every single day. Super quiet in here, super quiet. Nobody plans to hurt their relationship, but it happens every single day. And when you're not yet married, sometimes you tell yourself, well, you know, I mean, Jeff, that that stuff doesn't really matter that much now. When I meet the one later on, you know, then I'll get serious about not being involved with sexual sin. But, but for now, I'm just doing what I need to do to survive, Jeff. Here's what you need to know. It's very, very difficult to build a life of righteousness on a foundation of sin. Very difficult. The way we live today is going to have an impact on all areas of our life in the future, including our future marriage if we're single right now. The vow of purity like all other vows, comes from Genesis 2.24. It's on your outline again. And this week we're gonna add the next verse, verse 25. Let's just read it. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. The word ashamed in the Hebrew is the word bush, and it means to be ashamed or to feel completely worthless. But Adam and Eve were, were naked and they didn't have any sense of, you know, oh, this is, this is a bit naughty. This is a bit wild and crazy, a little bit inappropriate, a little bit wrong. There wasn't anything dirty about it at all. But when sin entered the world, so did shame. And we began to feel unworthy. We began to feel unlovable. We began to feel things like dirty and, and embarrassed. And any time we encounter shame, we feel the need and the desire to hide, Right? But back when God made them, Adam and Eve were, were naked and they didn't feel any shame. It was totally innocent and pure and right. Kind of like a, a toddler, if you, if you ever had a, a toddler in your home who just runs around naked because their only thought is, why would you wear pants when you could not wear pants? <laughs> like that's as far as it goes in their mind. And, and you know, it's just innocent and it's different when it's a toddler, because you know there, there's nothing dirty going through their minds at all. It's not the same when an adult runs around wearing no pants, and some of you had to learn that the hard way, you know? So what messed up Adam and Eve's freedom? Well, if you know the story, they were naked, they felt no shame, but a serpent came along and tempted them to sin. Eve gave in, Adam didn't do anything about it, he joined her in their sin, and next thing you know, sin entered the world, and suddenly they felt what? They felt shame. They felt self-conscious. And here's how the story goes. It actually says in Genesis 3-7, then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And immediately there's this sense of shame. Immediately Eve is asking Adam, do these fig leaves make me look fat? Immediately that happens, right? Bible scholars tell us as well, uh, this is when Adam said, you know, somebody's got to wear the plants in this family. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. They made, uh, they made coverings for themselves. Then we read this in Genesis 3.9. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? Adam answered, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. You see, Adam hid. And this is still what we do today. You, you take a look at your little kid who's got chocolate all over his face and you say, did you eat chocolate? And what does he say? No, no. 
You look at your little one-year-old, year and a half old, and you can smell what's going on. And you say, did you poop? And they just slowly back up into a corner. No? No? But this is what happens to grown-ups as well. This is what happens to us. We, somebody says to us, hey, are you in a place where you need help? No. You being tempted by something? Are you struggling with something? No, no. Is there anything you need? No, no, I'm good, I'm good. We end up hiding because we feel a profound sense of shame. And here's what happens. We, we do something wrong and we feel shame. And what does shame do? This is, this is a huge thing to understand about shame. Shame is Satan's tool for connecting our action to our identity. I'll say that again. Shame is Satan's tool for connecting our action to our identity. This is what Satan does. He says, you did something bad, therefore you are something bad. So he wants to connect the action and make it your identity. And within our marriages, we often think when it comes to our spouse, well, I can't let you know what I did because then I'm bad. I can't let you know where I struggle because then you won't love me. I can't let you know what I'm going through because then we just, we wouldn't have the trust that we have. And so instead of growing in intimacy through truth in our marriages, we so often instead choose to live in secrecy. This is the whole big point of today. Make a note of this on your outlines. Secrecy is the enemy of intimacy. Secrecy is the enemy of intimacy. We'll take a look at our vow for this week before we unpack this some more. I'll just recap the three vows from the previous three weeks. On week number one, our vow was, I promise that God will be my first priority and my spouse will be my second. Week number two, we said, I promise to pursue my two. Last week, week number three, our vow of partnership was, our marriage will be about we and not about me. And our fourth vow, you can write this down, is the vow of purity, it's this, I will confide in you and not hide from you. I will confide in you and not hide from you. Because secrecy is the enemy of intimacy. In fact, Ephesians 5.8 really speaks about the effect of darkness and light in our life. Paul says this, it's on your outlines. He says, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. You were once darkness, for those of you that are following Jesus, before you were a Jesus follower, you were in darkness. You were separated from God by your sin and you were in darkness. The problem now though is that even though we may be spiritually free from sin, practically we sometimes step back into ongoing sin. I'll say it again a different way. Spiritually, we've been made new. God does not hold our sin against us because of the blood of Jesus, but practically we can choose to step back into and live in darkness. Spiritually or positionally, we are right with God. We're right with Jesus, but practically we're still sinning. And this is something we shouldn't be complicated or, or confused about in any way because we all know that we're still sinning even though we're saved, even though we're forgiven. It's a little bit like walking from the lobby of a movie theater into the darkness of the actual movie theater. It can seem shocking, but after a few minutes, your eyes adjust to the darkness. And then at the end of the movie, you walk outside into the sunlight and you're just blinded by the light. What I'm trying to do is gently point out that, that some of us, we, we've stepped back into the darkness in areas of our life and we don't even realize it because our eyes have just adjusted 
to the darkness. We've just gotten used to it. We're living in the darkness and we don't even realize that we're missing out on the light that God wants us to be living in. Sometimes in marriage when things aren't working, you don't even realize why they're not working because your eyes have simply adjusted to the darkness. You're involved in something in an area of your life that is not the light of God, but it's the darkness of this world, but it's just become normal to you. And so you can't figure out what's going on in your marriage because you've just gotten used to the darkness. Look at Ephesians 5.8 again. Paul said, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Now take a look at what he says next. He says, walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. That's what we want in our marriages. That's what we want for every area of life. Then Paul says, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Have no relationship with the things of darkness, but rather expose them. Don't hide them, don't conceal them, expose them. Have nothing to do with them, bring them into the light. Why? Because you never find healing in the dark. You never find healing in the dark. And that's the great lie and the irony that we don't see is we say, I'm gonna stay in the dark because I feel shame. When are you gonna come out of the dark when I don't feel shame anymore? But you're never gonna get healed of that shame as long as you stay in the dark. You have to bring it into the light. That's where the healing is. Shame grows in the dark, but healing happens in the light. Would you write that down? Shame grows in the dark, but healing happens in the light. We stay in the dark because we're ashamed. And let's be honest, we also don't just immediately bring our shame into the light because we're terrified what the reaction's going to be if we bring it into the light. We know God will forgive us, but what about our spouse? What about our friends? What about our church? We worry about those things and Satan heaps on the lie saying, everyone's gonna reject you. Everything's gonna fall apart if you bring it into the light. But you never get healed in the dark. You only get healed in the light. In fact, Paul says that God's standard is incredibly high when it comes to purity in our lives. He says this in Ephesians 5.3. He says, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you. I put this on your outlines too. The NIV says it a bit simpler. But among you, there must not be even a hint, a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity. Shouldn't even be a hint. Nothing that resembles it. Nothing at all, nor any kind of impurity. What is impurity? Is essentially, it's, it's poison. And what do you do around poison? You stay away from it. And so you stay away from anything that is impure or displeasing to God because it corrupts, it poisons, it, it harms those who consume it. And when you get into the scriptures, you find that the Bible talks about sexual sin in a way that it only talks about a few other kinds of sins. We're talking about things like witchcraft, divination. There's a small group of things that God has had absolutely nothing to do with these things. Nothing. And so here's the irony, to put that in perspective, the Bible doesn't even forbid the drinking of wine or alcohol. It says don't do it excessively. Don't have the reputation of being a drunkard. But even the Bible with alcohol says like, no, it's not, it's not that you never need to touch a drop of it, no. But with sexual sin, it's in the same category as things like worshiping Satan or worshiping a false god. It's in this category where God says nothing, not even a little bit. The Bible is not like bikinis and speedos are okay to look at for a little bit. The Bible's like just nothing, like nothing, nothing at all. Not even a hint 
of it. And here's the problem in our day and age. When we talk about purity in marriage, we tend to think, you know what, Jeff, I'm, I'm with you. I am not supposed to commit adultery. We're on the same page about sexual sin. That's where the line is. That's where the line is. And we don't realize that the line with sexual sin actually starts way, way back here. And long before you ever cross the adultery line, you cross all kinds of sin lines on the way to that. And so we need to recognize that Jesus said something very clear about the sin line with adultery in Matthew 5. It should be on your outlines. He said, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus is saying, listen, the line for adultery is actually way, way back here. The line with sin is is the first time you're at the gym and you go, oh. And you look at that lustfully. The line for sexual sin is not look but don't touch. That that verse isn't anywhere in the Bible. As the Bible says, look but don't touch. That's, That's not anywhere in the Bible. We've crossed the line when we're allowing ourselves to lust over another person. And that's why so many of us have allowed ourselves to get into the darkness. That's why so many of us have gotten used to it. Because that's just so normal in our culture. And that's why so many marriages are hurting and are struggling. We have no idea that our eyes have adjusted to the darkness. Because we're taking our cues from our culture. And we're saying, listen Jeff, compared to the people I work with, I'm practically Mother Teresa in this area. But the standard isn't what everybody else is doing. The standard is God. And what he says is healthy, what he says is good. Let me put it to you by by the way of this metaphor. If you're like me, then almost every day you're reading the, the latest news about the coronavirus. And I don't know if you recall, but the official explanation that was given by the Chinese government was that at first it was, well, you know, this virus probably started in bats at this exotic food market that we have here in Wuhan and there were live bats and there were dead bats and there were live bats in stew that people were buying and eating and dead bats in stew and and somehow in there 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 was this coronavirus and people ate some bats and people got sick and when I heard that the thought I really had is you know I I don't want to judge anybody else's culture but this pandemic sure seems super preventable you know like if we would just not eat the bats then none of this would have happened. It seems like we should have figured out that eating bats was a bad idea like a long time ago. And again, I don't mean to be culturally insensitive, but it's just my position that we should maybe stop eating bats, especially in light of this new revelation. But in the last few days, some interesting details emerged. And I don't know if any of you saw this, but I'll tell you what the scoop is. The market in question was and actually is a seafood market. Doesn't sell bats, doesn't sell any other kind of land-based creature. And in the whole first batch of uh, people who were infected in China, in Wuhan, nobody had even been to that market. Out of like the first hundred cases they identified, nobody had even been to that market recently. But here's the crazy part that the Chinese government forgot to mention. There's only one biological lab in all of China that is level four rated. That means it is rated to supposedly safely deal with deadly and dangerous viruses like anthrax, SARS, H1N1, all these sorts of things. Guess where the lab is located, the only one in all of China? In Wuhan, about five minutes away from this seafood market which they claimed was the epicenter for this epidemic. And it gets even better because last year an employee of this lab was sent to prison 
for making over a million dollars illegally because what he was doing is he was taking these animals that they would test these viruses on, which when they're done their experiments, they're supposed to be put down and incinerated, right? But he was taking these animals and then selling them on the side to exotic food dealers. So he's taking monkeys and things like this that have deadly viruses and he's selling them on the side to the tune of making over a million dollars. That's how long he had been doing this. And then people are eating these animals and uh, playing around with getting potentially a, a deadly virus. Sometimes it doesn't happen because they've cooked the meat, but just a really, really bad idea. And so the bottom line is that, is that while China had this level four and has this level four biological lab, they have not been running it competently. And all the circumstantial evidence now points to this being a leak from this lab that got out into the public through either an employee, through not following proper protocols, or through some lab animal that should have been incinerated but was able to be uh, taken outside of the lab while it was still alive. It got out to the general public. And so I share all that by way of analogy to make this point. There are some things that are so dangerous, you just do not play around with them. You don't play around with them. You don't say, I could make a few extra bucks on the side. That's a pro. What's the con? I might unleash the next plague that kills millions of people on the world. It's a tough call. Not a tough call, right? There's some things you just really, really do not play around with at all. Deadly pathogens, they're on that list. You don't play around with deadly pathogens. So is sexual sin. It's also on that list. And things like lust. Because if you mess around with certain things, the reason they're on this list of things you don't mess around with is because if you mess around with the things on this list, people get hurt. People get hurt. That's the great lie of sexual sin, right? I'm not hurting anybody, it's consensual. I'm not hurting anybody, this is just something I do on my own, just between me and my computer. And that logic works, you can lie to yourself about that. The logic works until your spouse finds out until you have to confess your sin and you can see the hurt and pain on their face and in their eyes, until you have to sit down with your future spouse that you find one day and lay out for them all the choices you made while you were waiting for them. I know Satan lies, but the truth is there's no such thing as sin that only hurts you. There's no such thing as sin that only hurts me. There's no such thing as a personal sin. It's like a virus or a pathogen. If you mess around with it, It'll get out, and when it does, there's gonna be casualties, guaranteed. I know the world says, hey, don't be so uptight. Why have such crazy standards? Because you can't build a marriage of righteousness on a foundation of sin, you can't do it. When you realize where the sin line is, you wanna stay away from it. You wanna stay away from it. You don't even wanna be like, well, you know, where is the line? It's like if you're asking, well, you know, how deadly of a virus can I play around with before it gets dangerous? Someone asks you that, I hope your response would be like, that's a dumb question. I'm concerned you even asked that question. I would just beg you to not play around with any viruses. Because if you're asking the question, well, well, how deadly can I play around with? You just shouldn't be doing with anything. That's a stupid question. Don't do that. Proverbs 5.8 says this about the adulterous woman. It says, Remove your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Solomon's advice there is like, listen, if, there, if there's somebody or something that is gonna lure you into sexual sin, don't take that street. 
Don't even walk past the door. Don't even get in the vicinity. Don't even put yourself in the neighborhood. It's not about chanting the mantra, I'm not sinning, I'm not sinning, I'm not sinning, I'm not sinning, don't look, don't look, don't look, don't look. It's treating it like poison and just staying the heck away from it. That's what we're supposed to do. Jesus was severe when he taught about this. He said it in Matthew 5 on your outlines. He said, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And and of course, this is why you see so many one-armed cyclopses at men's conferences. You'll get in a minute. I don't think, I was like, think about it. Actually, no, don't, don't think about it. Just don't think about it. Let's just move on. I don't think Jesus was being literal, but he was, by the way of metaphor, making a very serious point. He was making the point that if something gets in the way of you walking righteously with Jesus, get rid of it. It's not worth it. It's not worth what it's going to cost you in this life, and it's not worth what it's going to cost you in eternity. And no, when I say that if there's something that gets in the way of you walking righteously with Jesus, I'm not giving you a new excuse that you can use to divorce your spouse, okay? You do not apply that logic to your spouse. If there's something that gets in the way of you walking righteously with Jesus, stay away from it. Don't flirt with it, don't get close to it. It's poisonous, it's dangerous, it's not a fun little thing to dabble in. It's not okay, it's wrong. Stay away from it, stay away from it. We always say Joseph didn't run away from Potiphar's wife because she was ugly. He ran away because if he didn't, he would have done something that he would have later regretted. He was like, I gotta get out of here. I've got to get out of here. And this is why Charlene and I, we do our best to live without secrets in our marriage. I have accountability software on my phone and computers and Charlene is my accountability partner. She gets the reports of what I've been looking at every single week and that's intentional on my part because I don't want to have an accountability partner who's a guy where I'm like hey I messed up this week and he's like yeah me too it's not really going to accomplish a whole lot of good Charlene has access to every password for every website that I use she does our finances and sees every dollar that I spend and none of that is because she's controlling or she's paranoid or, or we're crazy it's because we just do our best to honestly live free from secrets I love my life I love my marriage and I don't want to mess it up So I want to do everything I can to avoid potentially compromising situations. I'm not trying to see how close I can get to the poison without getting infected. How do we actually live this out? How do we live purely in a very impure world? Well, David famously asked the same question in Psalm 119 when he wrote this. It's on your outlines. How can a young man cleanse his way? It's a question that's been asked for millennia. How do you stay on the path of purity? And David answers his own question by saying, by taking heed according to your word. In other words, by living by the word of God. Seeing it, reading it, knowing it, and then doing our best to live it out. Then David says, with my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. And then I love what he says next. He says, your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. So how do we live according to God's standard? How do we live a life of purity? We live according to the word of God. We believe it, we, we take it seriously. We trust that the one who created us knows how we're wired to work. He knows what situations we cannot handle. He knows what temptations are incredibly dangerous to us and he counsels us on how to live to avoid a compromised life. 
We have to know his word. We have to be students of his word. We have to make sure his word is not just something we hear when we're at church, but it's the living bread that we feed on every day, that it nourishes us, it strengthens us, it guides our paths, it directs our steps. His word transforms our heart. It conforms our mind to the image of Christ. It washes impurity from our lives and it leads us to know the power of the Holy Spirit that leads us out of darkness and into the light of God. As we live according to his word and grow in our relationship with the Lord, our mind begins to change to become more like Jesus. It might be slow progress, but it happens. We change and we slowly become more like him. And as you get closer to the Lord, here's what happens. You begin to see the ugliness of sin more clearly. You know, the closer you get to the Lord, the more the fake veneer of sin begins to peel away and you can see it for what it is. You begin to see the world differently. You begin to see people who are involved in that sin and you can see the damage that it's doing. You begin to see more clearly as you get closer to the Lord and you begin to see and experience how living the Lord's way leads to blessings. And as that happens, you see your walk with God, your desire to live in purity isn't a monastic thing. It's not an ascetic lifestyle where it's based on denial and you're like, hey, listen, yeah, my whole life, all I do is is, is try and avoid bad things. That's no way to live. Why? Because all you're doing is focusing on the things that you're trying to avoid, right? You just end up thinking about stuff more. It's like the sign that says, do not walk on the grass. I didn't know I wanted to walk on the grass until I saw that sign right then. If you have this whole long list of don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, it's, then you just spend your whole life focused on the things that you're trying not to do, which just makes you want to do them even more. But when you lean into a relationship with God and you begin to experience his blessings, you begin to see clearly that there's not blessings in living the other way. It's no longer about I can't, I, I mustn't, it's forbidden. It becomes I don't, I don't want to. I don't want the damage. I don't want to deal with the consequences. I, I, I don't want to deal with the guilt. I don't want to deal with the shame. I, I want the blessings. And when you press into God and you get to know him, you find that those things that, that, that used to lure you, they begin to not have the same lure that they used to because you're being changed to become like Jesus. You're becoming like him. And you can see more clearly what those things lead to. When you've experienced the goodness and blessings of God, you begin to realize that's what you really want. Secrecy is the enemy of intimacy. And that's why in our marriage, we we don't want to have any secrets. So the last thing we're going to do today is we're going to go through something really practical. I added this on to the end today because I want to be real clear about some things I would recommend every believer practice in their marriage. And if you come here regularly, you know we, we don't do this a lot. I don't teach every week and give you three things that you need to do because I I just think we're not going to end up doing any of them and I don't think trying to follow a set of rules is the way to live the Christian life. But what I'm going to do here is, is suggest five practical practices that are just wisdom and, and I believe the Holy Spirit would, would agree with. If you want to know how, how do I actually protect my life, I, I, I'm convinced that God's way is better and, and I want to walk that path and I want my marriage to be blessed. I don't want to screw things up. What are some things that I can do to, to help protect my life and my marriage? I'm going to share some with you and you might find these a little bit controversial but, but again we're not trying to have normal marriages. We're trying to have blessed marriages. We don't want what the world has. We're going to talk about them and then we'll explain them. Firstly, write this down. No secret spaces. No secret spaces. Let me step on some toes here. 
And I mean, if you know me, I'm, I'm so desperate to be liked. I, I rarely take the chance to offend anyone ever. So just indulge me this week. We'll, we'll do something different. One of you should not have a bank account that the other cannot access in order to at least see where the money is going. So one of you should not have a bank account that the other can't even look at. Now understand, people got issues. Maybe some of you buy too many shoes and there's a bank account that you can't touch. And that's for the good of the marriage. I understand that that happens. But you should not have a bank account that the other person cannot even see. They can't even log in or take a look at an account statement that comes in the mail. That's just a bad setup. It's a bad setup. It gives you the opportunity to do things in secret online and in real life. It's just not wise. And again, I'm going to talk more about this in a second. But anyone who's like, oh, that doesn't affect me, you're not that holy. Let me just be blunt. Let's bring us down to real life here. You're not that holy. You're not that impervious to sin. You're not that unsusceptible. You have not completely conquered that sin forever in your life, okay? This is about being really real about what is wise and a wise way to live. No secret email accounts, okay? You should know or at least have access to, one way or another, each other's passwords in a marriage. Your spouse should know the password to your phone. And if they ever want to look at it, that's okay. That's okay. If that offends you, what do you have on there? Seriously. If you don't like that idea, why? Why? What's going on? No secret spaces. And the only exception that I think is okay is if you journal as part of your spiritual life. I think that's okay to have a journal where you write and you talk to God and your spouse can't read it. I think that's okay. To have a space where your daily entry is like, Lord, please give me patience with my spouse. Please, Jesus, I need it. So, that's okay. You can have that. You can have that, okay? And if your spouse has that and they ask you not to read it, that's why. Respect it, okay? She's praying for grace and patience to live with you. Just let her do that. Honor that, okay? But other than that, like, like no, no, no secret spaces, okay? And I know some people might say, and I, lots of people that I personally know, I know would hear that and they would say, well, well, it sounds like you have a trust problem, Jeff, in your marriage. If a couple really trusts each other, then they won't need to ever check on their spouse's stuff. Here's my answer, respectfully. Again, I think anyone who has that sort of view of themselves is a little unrealistically elevated. Let me put it that way. It's a view that says, I can have secret spaces because I would never fill in the blank. I would never have an affair. I would never get emotionally involved with someone in a way that's inappropriate. I would never share details of my marriage with someone that I shouldn't. I would never put myself in a compromising situation. I would never join something online that I shouldn't. I would never ever do that. But let's go back to the beginning of the message. Nobody gets married and says, oh, my goal is to have an affair in a few years. Destroy this relationship, get a divorce and share custody of the kids. Nobody says that. Nobody says that. Every person, pretty much every person who ends up involved in the things that you might be thinking, I would never do that. Guess what? That's what every person who's married and got involved in those things said at the beginning of their marriage, especially every Christian. I would never. They all said that and they all did. Nobody plans for that to happen. 
The no secret spaces rule is for people who are willing to be honest with themselves. People who've seen enough of the darkness in themselves to know what we're all capable of and who wanna stay as far away from it as possible. And that's what I want. I don't wanna create the margin. I don't wanna create the room in my life for bad decisions. I don't want that room in my life. I wanna make it as difficult and impossible for me to mess things up. Can't have an affair, can't get a hotel room. I can't even draw cash out of my bank account without my wife knowing. That's good, that's the way I want it. I don't want the room for that to ever happen in my life. And maybe you're better than me and you really would never make a terrible mistake, but you're probably not. And you're probably equally capable because we all are. So adjust your life accordingly. I would never fill in the blank is not a strategy. Please hear me on that. That's not a plan. I would never do that. That is not a plan. That's an assumption. And the Bible would say it's it's a baseless assumption. Secondly, pay attention to your mental diet. Pay attention to your mental diet. When it comes to the media that you consume, the, the movies and TV that you watch, the books that you read, the websites you visit, it's all affecting us on a profound level. Whether you realize it or not, everything that we consume from a media perspective creates points of comparison that we use to compare our spouse. And the more you compare, this is what all the science says, secular psychology says this, the more you compare, the less satisfied you will be with what you have. This is why so many people are depressed because we're on social media all the time comparing ourselves to everyone else. Facebook, everybody's having a good time. Everybody's going to Hawaii. You're like, again? Everybody, everybody looks great. Everybody looks amazing. Everybody's losing weight. Everybody got new clothes. Everyone's having fun. Everyone's kids are cute. The more you compare, the less satisfied you'll generally be and the less appreciative you'll be. And let me tell you this in marriage, the more you compare, the less physically attracted you will be to your spouse. That is what will happen. That is, that is what will happen. And we need to also be honest about the way viewing impure content affects us. It's not that we see it, we partake, we, we look at it, and then we walk away and it's gone forever. That's, that's not how the mind works, especially for men. Those images, that, those concepts, they linger in our minds sometimes for the rest of our lives. They go into this memory bank, and when we're tempted, there's this library that we can access in our minds. We need to be honest about the way this stuff affects us. You can't be consuming impure content on the regular and then live a pure life and have a pure marriage. You won't. You're sabotaging your marriage. You are not the one person in the world who's not affected by stuff this way. This is how it works. This is how human beings work. Thirdly, internet accountability. Write that down, internet accountability. Don't have to take my word for it, just just go look at the stats, the number of people who are addicted to porn, view it on, on a daily or at least weekly basis, men and women, it's just completely, completely out of control in our society and the stats are no different in the church, unfortunately. If you have any level of issue or temptation, any level of issue or temptation with internet porn, you need to have accountability software on your phones or your computers. If you're using internet stuff, for sexual sin in any way, you need to have accountability software on all your devices. If you're a parent, you need to do this for your kids. Why? Because your kids are not the exception, 
to the rule for everything else. They're curious like every other kid. They're little sinners like every other kid, just like you were, okay? Do not fool yourself. Do not fool yourself. And then my recommendation again is that you choose an accountability partner that you don't want to let down, like your wife. If you don't want to play games, go with your wife. Because again, choosing another dude who's also struggling with internet porn is like having an addict counseling an addict. When you mess up, they're just going to make you feel better about it because it makes them feel better about the fact that they just messed up too. You'll be like, well, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Thank God for grace. And nothing, nothing ever happens. Covenant Eyes is a great service. It's the one that we use in our family. It works really, really well. Number four, stay away from the early steps of an affair. The early steps of an affair. We've talked about this in the past, and I know this is controversial, especially in 2020, but, but everybody thinks, I would never have an affair. But here's what I find. When I examine myself and I talk to other people, what most of us mean when we say, I would never have an affair, what most of us really mean behind that is, I assume I'll never be in the position where that's even an option. We say, I would never have an affair, but, but we say that because we, we don't think we'll ever have to worry about it. We don't think the opportunity will ever be there. We think, no one's ever going to ask me if I want to do that. I mean, my best days are behind me. We think, no one's, no one's going to pursue me that aggressively. I'm, I'm married with kids. Nobody's looking for this. And so we, we let our guard down. And, and sometimes, far too often, sadly, that, that blind spot creates a real position of vulnerability in our lives. Because affairs don't generally happen when, when two people just bump into each other in a hallway and the next minute they're in the janitor's closet. And they're not there for the cleaning supplies, if you're tracking with me. Most affairs develop slowly over time. Slowly over time. As a relationship moves through one layer after another of intimacy until all that's left is the inevitable physical intimacy. We have conversations we shouldn't have about topics we shouldn't talk about. We, we discuss our marriage and our spouses. We discuss our sex life. We, we joke in an increasingly inappropriate way with them. We're joking with them in increasingly flirtatious ways. We talk about how, how life at home is hard and, and we begin to notice life at home is hard and then we say, well, life, you know, talking with this person is so easy and we're blind to the fact like, yeah, it's so easy because you're not doing real life with them. You're not raising children with them. You're not managing finances with this person. You're not paying bills together. You're not dealing with anything that's real life with this person. You just show up and talk and, and don't have any responsibility. But all we see is, man, it's so easy to be with them and talk with them. And it's, it's, it's so difficult with my spouse. And suddenly we, we like this person more than we like our spouse because we've, we've kept moving through these little layers of intimacy slowly over time, sometimes even over years. And we can't fully unpack this today, but, but I urge you to think through what is healthy and what is unhealthy when it comes to interactions with the opposite sex. Back up from where the affair actually happens, from where it's consummated. Back up to what the dominoes are that knock over all the other dominoes. Get way back and then say, I don't want to knock over that first domino. I don't want to do that. What Satan loves to do, and he's doing it right now for some of you, God's convicting you of some things that, that you shouldn't be doing with members of the opposite sex that you're doing right now. You're not having an affair, but you're, you're just inappropriately close to some people. And God's talking to you about it. And what Satan is saying to you right now is he's saying, don't be ridiculous. Don't be ridiculous. You're just talking. 
You're just talking. You're just having conversations. As though intimate conversations have never led to anything more than that. Conversations have started wars. And an overly intimate conversation about overly intimate subjects can lead to a lot more than talking. And then fifthly, think through the consequences. Think through the consequences. Man, if, if all you can see is, oh, it would be so great to have an affair with this person. It would be so much fun to spend more time with them. It would be so great to be with them. Think through the consequences. Imagine if you had an affair. Imagine what it would be like when it all came out and it all became public. Imagine what would happen. Imagine telling your spouse. Imagine having to tell your kids. Imagine everyone at work finding out. Imagine potentially being kicked out of your house by your spouse. Imagine having to share that news with your church, with your small group. Or just never ever going back to church because you just, you're too ashamed. Imagine if your spouse wants a divorce and they, they don't want to forgive you. Imagine the damage you would do to your testimony as a Christian. Imagine having to space, face the other person's spouse. Thinking through the consequences is the mental equivalent of taking a cold shower when you're tempted. Suddenly, it's just not worth it. Just not that exciting when you think through the consequences. We should take this stuff seriously because in just a few moments of selfishness, I could ruin my life. I could ruin my life. In a few moments of selfishness, secrecy is the enemy of intimacy. It's the enemy of intimacy. I'll wrap up with this. So listen, some of you right now, you're walking right on the line. You're walking right on the edge. You think you're walking right on the edge of fun. You are walking right on the edge of disaster. Disaster. If that's you, stop playing around. Stop playing around. People are going to get hurt. You're going to get hurt. Be wise. Stay away. Don't see how close you can get. What do the scriptures say? Can a man take fire in his lap and, and not be burned? There's only going to be one outcome. Even though adultery is grounds for divorce, adultery is also grounds for forgiveness. And the good news is that we serve a God of grace. And so if you're stepping into any form of darkness right now, I know it's hard, but I need to encourage you to do what's right and bring what you're doing in the dark into the light with your spouse. Proverbs 28:13 says, he who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. You don't heal in the dark. You don't heal in the dark. We confess our sins to God and we confess our sins to people. We confess our sins to God for forgiveness and we confess our sins to people for healing. If we confess our sins to God, he's faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We confess our sins to people, God says he'll be faithful to heal us. If you're the sinner, your job is to confess and repent, to turn away from that sin. And again, just whatever sin it is, do whatever you have to do. Whatever you have to do. I, I cannot stress how serious I am about this. Get accountability software on your phone. If you have to quit your job and find another job to get away from this situation, do it. 
do it. It's not worth your family to keep that job. It's not worth it. Whatever you need to do. If you're the one receiving their confession, your job is to forgive. That's what the Lord wants you to do. And I know, I know that's an oversimplification. That's probably a whole message series on its own about forgiveness. But it is true. It is true. It's incredibly difficult, but it is incredibly simple. We're supposed to forgive. And remember, you're responsible for, for your part. You don't get to control the other person. You don't get to tell them that they have to do their part. You don't get to say, I confess, so you have to forgive. You don't get to do that. If you're the sinner, you've got to confess and repent. If you're the one receiving that confession, you need, you need to forgive. You need to forgive. That's on you. And I'll also say this. If, if you want intimacy in your marriage, think through how you handle confession. Even if that, that's not happening right now, even if your spouse isn't confessing anything to you, think ahead. If you want intimacy in your marriage, real intimacy, if you want no secrets in your marriage, how are you going to handle confession? Because again, assuming your spouse will never do anything wrong is not a plan. That's not a strategy. It's an assumption. And so you've got to think through, how are you going to handle it if they come to you one day and they say, I'm, I messed up in this area? I'm struggling in this area. Because how you respond will probably affect whether or not they ever do it again. It's the same as being a parent. How you respond when someone's radically and vulnerably honest with you, how you respond will probably affect whether or not they will ever do it again. We don't get a lot of opportunities to get that right. We don't. So think that through, think ahead. Make sure that you're not receiving it in a way that makes them say, well, that's the last time I do that. Thanks for nothing, Pastor Jeff. Stupid idea. You do not, you do not heal in the dark. Secrets are the enemy of intimacy. If you want what a few people have, you have to be willing to do what only a few people do. And many people, many, many people, most people, don't have what we want in our marriages. They don't have it. And so we've got to live different. God has a different plan, a better path, and he has a blessed life for you, your marriage, and your family. So walk the path that God has for you. Walk the path that God has for you. With that, let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you so much for the wisdom and the guidance of your word, Lord God. Father, I just want to pray this evening for, for anyone among us who, is, who has gotten used to the darkness in their marriage, in their life. Uh, Father, I just pray in the name of Jesus for courage. I just pray for courage. Courage to not try and wait for the perfect moment to confess, but, but, but to just do it. Courage to do it because it's the right thing to do, not because it's the easy thing to do. Uh, courage because we want to be healed. Now we know that can only happen in the light and we want to be free from shame. And then Father, I pray for, for anyone who may be on the receiving end of confession. Lord, would you help us to be gracious. Father, would you release a, a special empowering in the area of grace for all of us to be like you in, in receiving confession, to remember and recall and understand that, that we're all broken we're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. And every single one of us has needed 
and continues to need the blood of Jesus to cover us. So Father, help us to, to reflect your heart if we're called upon to be the one receiving confession. Help us to live in the light, not to live in the darkness. Help us not to get used to the darkness, but to live in the light so that the darkness is, is uncomfortable to us, so that it's shocking, so that it's disorienting, so that we can discern the difference between light and dark and live as children of light. And then, Father, lastly, we just pray that you would make us wise. You would make us wise. To not assume that we would never, ever be vulnerable to sin, but to rather live wisely and stay as far away from that as we possibly can. Father, we ask that you would heal us of our brokenness. Make us whole, Lord God. Illuminate for us the areas where we need healing and help us to obey you, whatever that looks like, whatever you're calling us to do, Jesus. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.